Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to A Minor Detail. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to A Minor Detail on blogtalkradio.com. You can find us on the web at aminordetail.com. We are a local political blog here in Maryland, and we do have the best scoops, only second best to veteran reporter Brian Sears, who will be our guest tonight. And if you don't know Brian Sears, he is a an associate regional editor, um, and uh, excuse me, I'm reading the – here I am. I'm already starting the show out, and I'm reading his the wrong bio, and I'm sure Brian will correct me. But uh, Brian is the government reporter at the Daily Record, um, and this is a well-read publication, and he is a tremendous asset to journalism, not only in Maryland, but I consider him to be one of the finest – political journalists around in the country, and I read a lot of political journalism. Um, Brian is currently on the Annapolis Beat, and tonight we're going to have a special episode about the Sine die, um, which by definition is with no appointed date for resumption, meaning that tomorrow is the last day for the Annapolis session. So as they always say in Annapolis, um, <laughs> while session is in, hold on to your wallets. And I want to welcome the famous Brian Sears. Brian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> welcome. Brian, I gave you tremendous accolades as I was introducing you and reading your bio. And uh, I said, and I, as I introduced you, and yesterday I wrote in the description of this show that you are arguably one of Maryland's best and most fair political journalists in a generation, and I stand by that. I read your columns, I read your articles, and you are the go-to person um, for the Annapolis Beat. And it's always impressive to just to follow your stories, the way that you shape it. And I, I know I sound like I'm majorly kissing, <laughs> kissing up here, but it's true. I'm glad that you're joining us to talk about Annapolis this evening. Well, I'm I'm glad that you had you're having me on, and, and it's nice to see that the check cleared before I came on. And uh, and and seriously, if you're if you're if you're taking my bio from online, you got to know you can't trust that stuff on the internet, Ryan. It's fake news. It's all fake news, <laughs> and we'll talk about that tonight. But before we get into uh, the crux of the show tonight, uh, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. How you got started in. Uh, the business of journalism, and I know that you had um, you did some politics before this, but I'm interested to hear how journalists get their foot into the door and do something that they so obviously love, as I can tell that you do. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, r- real quick, uh, I figured out right around about the time I was 14 or 15 that this is what I really wanted to do. Um, delivered newspapers for a while, um, went to went to college, uh, managed to pick up a, a summer job that turned into a full-time job, um, probably, uh, I guess somewhere between uh, 18 and 19, and have been sort of doing it pretty much uh, ever since. No. Well, I, I, I was reading your bio um, through LinkedIn, which doesn't cover probably even a tenth of um, your career, but I see that you were a um, a political editor for uh, publishing, is it Patuxent Publishing from yep. May for, for, 2002? For Patuxent Publishing. 
Yeah, for, for, for Patuxent Publishing, and they're uh, more, I think, known now sort of as a Baltimore Sun media group. Um, it was a, a chain of uh, 12 weekly community newspapers in the Baltimore County area, and I was responsible for their county government and their state government coverage at the time. And then you were an associate regional editor uh, for Maryland Regional One for The Patch, which everybody reads The Patch if they live in Maryland. So, And that was from Towson. Yeah, and again, I did uh, pretty much pretty much the same thing for them that I did when I was at uh, was at the Towson Times. They I, I, I left to to for an opportunity to do something more a little online, um, also to work with Doug Donovan, who's now at the Sun, who was a journalist that I really admired, and and I had turned Patch down a couple of times before Doug came knocking and and told me that he was joining and wanted me to come work with him, and and really the only reason I ended up going was because because of him. Brian, you're. Everybody in Maryland who listens to politics, follows politics, um, we all listen to WBAL. It's a great source for news, and I see that you're a contributor there, and you've been contributing to the uh, the WBAL news team. That's the 1090 AM since August 2009, and I've heard you several times on there. That has to be a lot of fun. So you get not only do you get to do radio, but you get to, to really influence people and inform people. And I, I just I love WBAL radio. They have a great program. They really do, and, and I've been very fortunate. I, I joined, got it, you know, I, I want to say it's been more than six or seven years ago now. Um, it started by doing sort of a weekly three minutes in the morning talking about Baltimore County uh, politics and and you know now some of the t- some of the radio hosts have uh, had me on their program to talk about various things um, in my capacity as a state government reporter so it's it's really been a great relationship. You've been with the Daily Record uh, since October 2013. Tell us about the Daily Record, what kind of newspaper and publication it is, and what your responsibility and, and role uh, with the record is. Yeah, the uh, the Daily Record is a um, is a government and uh, legal and business paper located in Baltimore. Um, our core audience is our core audience is legal. Uh, I'm in business, but they've had a state government reporter for years and years, um, and I'm just sort of another in a long line of really really good um, government reporters that they've had there. Um, it's it's been a, it's been a great relationship. I was very fortunate when I left Patch. Um, when, when Patch downsized back in 2013, um, the Daily Record actually came calling within a day or two of, uh, of me being told that I was about to be laid off and, and offered me a job, and it's been a, it's been a wonderful place to work. Yeah, and I read your uh, – you have a blog, and, or you contribute to it, uh, the Eye on Annapolis blog, and uh, I, I'm just scrolling through it. It's a great commentary about state politics, um, it, and it has a lot of great information about what's happening. And I feel like in Maryland political news, um, between January and, of course, April, when uh, session begins in mid-January and it ends in mid-April, um, there's so much going on, and it's hard to decipher exactly what's happening because we're getting such an influx of, of news from not only from uh, the Daily Record, uh, the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Post is metro section covers uh, Annapolis session and various other newspapers. And Brian, where I grew up in Western Maryland in Hagerstown, we have the Herald Mail. And to be honest with you, I still read it every day. It's my hometown newspaper. 
Yeah, and and look, you've got a great uh, you've got a great reporter out there, Tammy Baker, who covers the state oh, house. Um, you know, there's a you know Daniel you know Daniel Gaines who covers for Frederick you know for the Frederick News Post. Um, it, you know, if you can imagine this, Ryan, you talk about feeling like you get in, there's a there's a tremendous influx between January and April. But imagine if you will, um, this is my 16th session, and if if we went back to my first session. Um, in Annapolis, I would tell you that we probably had triple the uh, the triple the uh, the size of the statehouse press corps. Um, a lot more news back then, um, and it's you know it's really sort of you know I, I should say there's there's no lack of things to be covered. It's more of the ability to use the small number of reporters who are still there to cover all of the things that are going on. Well, speaking to that, Brian, and just as a brief aside, so I live in Montgomery County, yeah. and you know, and you're familiar that recently the Gazette it shut up its oper- it shut down its operations, and frankly, I'm really disappointed. They provided tremendous coverage of Montgomery County politics. They did a little bit of statewide politics, but I, we're bereft of uh, local political news, and there's a lot to cover in Montgomery County where the state's largest county. We have the most people. There's a lot of business activity. There is a lot of political news, especially with um, the Montgomery County Council as well as the Board of Education. It, what Do you see anybody filling the vacuum in Montgomery County news? You know, unfortunately, I, I don't, and it's, and it's the same all over. I mean, I, you know, I, I can speak to my experience when I worked at Patuxent. Um, you know, the, the papers that were in Baltimore County are not the same as they were, you know, to, they're not the same today as they were when I was there, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and it's the same for, it's the same in Montgomery County. And then unfortunately the, you know, not only did you guys lose the, you know, the community weeklies that were there that were doing a lot of the watchdog reporting, but you guys lost the you guys lost the, uh, the Gazette and Pol- of politics and business, you know, the, and most notably the Friday paper, um, which if you take a look at some of the reporters that matriculated through there, I mean, you're really talking about some of the best of the best. There's a guy named Steve Dennis who covers the white house now who used to cover the state house when, you know, when I was there and, you know, Josh Kurtz, who probably, you know, is, is one of, is the Dean of the Maryland government, um, you know, government coverage, who's trying to start his own independent website, Maryland matters. I mean, another name that came through there. I mean, these, the paper was a must read every week and it's just gone. It is. And we're looking and I know that there has been there's been some seminars on various ideas about how to infiltrate the Montgomery County media market again and how to fill that vacuum as I mentioned earlier. I'm I'm concerned, but I'm I'm hoping that perhaps that a group of veteran journalists um can come together um, and look, we have Moco Media, um, we you know sort of like the, the the public media, and we have the Washington Post does a good job of covering some excuse me some aspects of Montgomery County media, but we still we still lack that. And being that it's such a huge delegation um, to the state house, and we have so much going on in in, in county government. I, we just need somebody or something or some media market. And look, a minor detail: we we cover some things, but look, we're just a a small two man shop, and we get stories and we we go with it. And you know, we're a hybrid of journalism and opinion. But um, I don't know, Brian. You know, we're I'm hoping that 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 hole will be 
filled up. But I want to talk just before we get into uh, what's going on in Annapolis and the, 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 the 90-day session. You know, in Maryland, Brian, I consider you to seriously be one of the best reporters. But we also, we also have some really great people that are doing some excellent journalism, and you're one of them. I would say uh, Mike Dresser is also one of my favorite journalists. Lynn Lazarick, you can't you can't forget Lynn Lazarick who compiles the um, the Daily News that you're often featured in, and his Maryland Reporter. There's John Wagner from the Post. There's John Fritzy from the Sun. There's Aaron Cox um, from the Baltimore Sun. I mean, these people. I think we have I think we have no shortage though. However, of excellent journalism in Maryland, would you agree? Oh, I'd absolutely agree. I mean, the, the, the people that you just named and a number of others, including Rob Lang from BAL and mm-hmm. Rachel Bay from, uh, you know, from WYPR, you know, Dave Collins from WBAL television. I mean, there really are a core of reporters down there who are, are very good, and, and, and they're people that I'm proud to call my colleagues. Oh, yeah. And it, I'm sure it gets hectic down at the press pool. I see your Facebook and I follow you on Twitter and it looks like a lot of fun. I've been I've had the pleasure to um to to visit there before and I remember uh back in about 8 or 9 years ago um I remember uh taking a trip down there um with NBC25 or uh it's now your fourstate.com. That's the local television station that's based in Hagerstown and they went down, and I remember seeing I, – I don't know if you remember. Uh, she was a great reporter. Um, well, I don't want to speak of her in the past tense because she's still with us. Erin um, Julius wrote for the Herald-Mail um, yeah. and another fine reporter. And you know, I, I feel like that the, the Herald-Mail is I, – I don't even want to call it a starter paper because that's unfair to call it. They, they do some great work, um, and I only see it growing stronger. There's a lot to cover. Maryland is like one of those keystone states. We're right next to um, Washington, D.C. We just have a lot of excellent journalism coming out. And I think that's good in this, this era, um, this inscrutable political era where nobody seems to know just what the hell is going on. And I just thank God for journalists like yourself for breaking it down, explaining all of it, and bringing some clarity and shining light – on what's happening and keeping our politicians honest. So with that, you know, let's go into it. Uh, let's go into session. Um, yeah. Session was <laughs> it was it was a wild ride, and I'm following it as best as I can. There was just so much information, and I felt like this session had to be one of the busiest in a long time. And they they seem to have accomplished a great deal, and um, you know as not everything gets done in session, and then you just wait to the next one. But, you know, Brian, what do you think? What's the biggest political story to come out of Annapolis session this year? You know, I'll tell you, I was, I was thinking about this earlier, and I think there are a number of sort of big stories. And, and the, the, But I'll tell you, the one thing that sort of surprised me the most out of this was, despite all of the things that you said, which are absolutely true, and it's not like they went down there and did nothing for 90 days, <laughs> um, my experience has been – that the third session of the term is generally the most contentious. It is generally the, uh, you know, it's, it's almost anarchy because it's one of those, it's one, it's the year when all the, all the real political stuff is going to get done because next year, every it's, you know, everybody's running for election. 
um, the session, right as the session ends, you're headed right into the primary election. And so it's, it's a very different feel in the fourth year. And, and this term um, at times felt glacial. Um, there, there was not sort of that excitement. And I'll tell you, the, you know, the, the, the agenda coming from, from the, the presiding officers in the House and the Senate um, was not what we would, I think, what a lot of us were, you know, would have expected for the third year of the term. Most of it really seemed to be um, focused on things that, the, you know, dealing with things at the federal level and, and, you know, and attempts to try and tie the governor to the, uh, to the president. I, I saw a lot of that, and um, and we're going to get to we'll talk about that particular element of of session. But I want to talk about what legislative leaders think that they accomplished versus the reality of what they did accomplish. And I think a good place to start uh, with this conversation is always the budget. So, Brian, can you walk us through the budget? What was cut? What wasn't cut? Um, how much money did we add? Who was happy and who was unhappy? Because we know that the budget, the, the, the duration it takes, the time that the governor presents the budget, and then um, the, the legislative branch um, cuts it up, slashes it, or it does whatever. It always brings out the worst in people, I've noticed. It, you know, it, it can, and, but I'll tell you, I mean, this year, and I think we've seen this sort of progressively since Governor Hogan came into office, um, we've seen the, the budgets become less and less contentious. Um, the governor's first year in office, I mean, it was, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of hand-wringing. Um, this year, we finished the budget up almost two weeks early, earlier than we needed to. Um, you know, there's a statutory timeline for when the legislature has to finish the uh, to finish the budget. And if they're not completely finished by then, the governor is required to sort of issue this pro forma executive order that basically says, if you don't finish the budget, we stay for, ex- you know, we, we stay for extra time in the session. And this is the first year in a long time that I can re- that, I, that I can remember that the governor didn't have to issue that executive order. Um, so, I mean, it. In a lot of ways, it went it went by fairly smoothly. Um, in terms of the numbers, I mean, you're talking about a roughly uh, forty three point five billion dollar budget. That's everything. Yeah. Um, that's that's all of your federal aid. That's all your special funds. That's all your, all the 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 money for the the university system. Um, wrapped into that is about seventeen point three billion dollars in general fund uh, general fund money. That's the that's the money that you and I pay in state taxes um, that, that sort of pays, you know, pays for the uh, most of the most of the local services. Um, one of the things that got cut that probably is of interest to, to you and your listeners is um, there was roughly about a roughly about a two thirds cut in the boost program, which you uh, you probably know is the, yeah. the program that gives scholarships to um, to public school students to go to private school. Um, I, I think the cut roughly amounted to about six point eight million dollars, but it's a two thirds cut. Um, one of the other things that got eliminated out of there was the governor's attempt again this year to get some kind of mandate relief. Um, he has in the last two years attempted to uh, to get the legislature to give him the ability to uh, suspend suspend the amount of money that gets paid into mandated programs outside of education and health care, 
when the budget doesn't grow as fast as expected. And, and, and there is some argument to be made about the fact that Maryland has a little bit of a spending problem when you're, you know, when your top legislative budget analyst notes that your budget is growing by 5% every year and your, uh, your revenues are growing by roughly three, you've got a gap. And so the governor is looking for ways, long-term solutions to deal with that. Um, and it looks like we'll probably put that off again until, uh, until next year. Um, there's a, a, there's, yeah, go ahead. I was going to, I was just going to ask you a very basic uh, granular question. When people, when, when session is over and when they, you know, when, when the clock strikes midnight tomorrow, whenever they finally release the confetti, as we've all witnessed in tiny die, um, except for except the for governor. one year, Ryan. In two thousand in two thousand and twelve, there was no confetti. <laughs> Why is that? Was it that they just didn't want to clean the stuff off the floor? Oh, Ryan, I got to tell you, that was a bad year. That was the year, if you remember, when the budget got when the budget got held up because of the whole issue of creating the sixth casino license for Prince George's County, which um, which Senate President Miller wanted, and and there was some hostage taking. And it got re- it got really pretty nasty. I mean, I remember when we when we finished, and we didn't really have a budget. And uh, Martin O'Malley, who was the governor at the time, came down to press row and stood out in the hallway and blasted Mike Miller um, for you know for holding for holding up everything. And we ended up having to come back for two special sessions that year. Um, but the, the feeling the feeling in the House and in the Senate was so bad. There was no confetti. There were no balloons, and the uh, and the the annual signy die party that gets held over in the uh, usually over in the Miller office building that was canceled. Um, so I mean it, it it was a it was a very weird uh, it was a very very weird vibe that year. But in general, um, they they like to celebrate getting out of town on 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 that last night. <laughs> it's true, and there's there's always some interesting things that go down at the very last moment. Um, of signy die and uh, some of their some of the the state legislators you know they see some of their local bills finally pass through and it's a really interesting process to watch I've I've wit- I've been witness to let's see three signy dies and the one thing that I can remember I think the first signy die that I attended was in 2014 I went down Kim and I went down and we had a blast uh, and you see all the legislators. They're hanging out, and then you see the the cabinet officials, various government officials, and they're they're sort of all walking around, and everyone's happy because after an exhaustive ninety days of legislating, um, yeah, everyone's ready to go home and back to their districts and meet with their constituents. And many of these folks return back to their regular jobs because, as you know, it's um, I, many of these folks have um, other careers, um, which I think it's encouraged that they do have other careers than just being a state legislator. But nonetheless, um, there's there's a lot of fanfare, and it's always fun. And many times the governor comes out, and tomorrow night, do you expect the governor to come out and it be you know full of fanfare and pomp and circumstance? Um, uh, we have not seen his schedule yet. Um, there are there is typically some uh, some media availability, um, so we expect that there'll probably be something uh, towards the end. Um, it's not unreasonable to believe that the governor is going to make an appearance somewhere. Um, but, but as to exactly what that might be, I, I can't speak to it just because we haven't seen his public schedule yet. <laughs> yeah, and all the legislative staffers are partying and having a lot of fun in their uh, the, the House and Senate offices, and you go to the various parties, 
And it's just a fun day to be in Annapolis and to watch the legislative process. And uh, But like I said, everybody's just ready to go home, especially the staffers. But many of the staffers do stay in Annapolis, and they will continue to work hard on behalf of the, the constituents. So, um, Brian, I remember earlier in our conversation, you said something that uh, the third session, you know, when uh, every third session seems to be something wild happens or the most contentious and the most jam-packed. And I remember... Back in 2013, it was the um, Martin O'Malley's second-to-last legislative session, and that's when they passed SB 281, and there were some other um, – I think that – I don't know if that was the gay marriage year. I think 12 was – 2012 was the gay marriage year, right? I'm not – I can't remember. I'm losing uh, my mind. 12, yeah, 12, 12 was – right, 12 was same-sex marriage. There were – there was also um, – so I think 13 was um, – the, the Brian Frosch gun bill, and yeah. also I believe we did minimum wage that year. Yeah, that was that was a pretty heavy session, and the budget and with O'Malley um, outgoing and the candidates starting to consider whether they were going to run or not, and everybody, of course, knew that Gansler and Brown was going to run. Um, so it was a wild time. So and and this session. Um, I wanted to talk about a little bit about relationships, and everyone seems to want to know what is the relationship between Senate President Mike Miller and Mike Bush, as or as I call him, the two Mikes, and Governor right. Hogan. Are they get are they getting along? What's are are they working together? Is it a bipartisan relationship? Are they is there any fighting or any bickering going on? I, you know, I would say there's probably a little less uh, a little less fighting this year than in years past. Um, uh, but the relationships that were the, at the beginning are the relationships that we have now. I mean, the 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 president and the, the president Miller and the governor um, they have described themselves as friends. They have a relationship that goes back years before um, the governor was you know the governor was elected. Um, that that relationship during the 90 days occasionally gets strained and there's, you know, and there's some evidence of that. And, you know, every now and again, you know, the, the, the governor will, the governor will say something that, you know, to, to, to poke the, the Senate president and the Senate president will remind us all that, you know, he, he looks at the, the fact that the governor's never held, held elected office as, you know, as a negative. And, um, you know, he, a couple of weeks ago, he, when Dennis Schrader's name was removed, um, from was withdrawn from consideration. I think he, you know, the Senate president referred to the governor's office as amateur night. He said it's amateur night up there. Um, so, you know, but in general, they get, they go to, they go to basketball games together. Um, and, and so they, they have dinner together. And, and I think they gen, they genuinely sort of like each other outside of the political arena. Um, the, 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 the speaker and the governor have somewhat more of a difficult relationship They've never quite gotten along. Um, I, I, I'll give you a real, a, a real good snippet that sort of explains this. Uh, one of the bill signings last week, um, the speaker walked in and the Senate president and the governor were greeting each other with kind of what I refer to as a bro hug. And the, <laughs> and the speaker immediately made remarked that, you know, he never gets a hug. And so when he came around, when he came around to the other side of the table, the governor, you know, the governor sort of leaned in and, and gave him a hug. But, uh, but Bush's remark was kind of telling because, I mean, they really don't sort of have that, that friendly relationship 
Um, and, you know, this, this speaker told me earlier in the year that, you know, he, he doesn't really get invited to the governor's mansion at all. Um, so well, it, that's, it's, a little more, that's interesting. it's a little more of a strained relationship. And here's my perspective as an outsider looking in, and I see – and I want to talk to you um, in, in just a bit about Governor Hogan's leadership style, but I see – You've been doing this a long time, Brian, in that you've been covering politics, and I mean, you truly understand how Maryland politics work, the, how the relationships are formed, and who are the real power brokers uh, behind uh, Anna- and inside of Annapolis. So I look at Mike Miller as being much more transactional than Mike Bush. And I look at Mike Bush as being much more of an ideological leader. Um, he has a rowdy caucus uh, in the uh, the House Democrats. I mean, and look, he has an overwhelming majority. And he's I, I look at both of them as two very different styles of polit of of politicking. And I see that Mike Miller is the old school kind of Joe Bidenish. Um, Get it done, but you know, be congenial. And I see Bush as definitely much more of a a partisan warrior. And is that description accurate, or am I sort of kind of hot or I cold? Think that's, I, Ryan, I think that's fairly close. And I think what you're describing is really something that's born out of the different styles of the chambers. Um, and you know, in Maryland, the the Senate, it, you know, the Senate's made up of 47 individual senators. And so it is very easy for the presiding officer to have one-on-one relationships with all of the members, and 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 Miller does. Um, you know, Miller always Miller got along very well, for example, with David Brinkley. Miller got Miller gets along very well with um, you know with the minority leadership now, uh, senators you know Senator Jennings and Senator Hershey. Um, he has relationships with every member of the Senate in the House. It's very difficult because you have 140, you know, you have 141 members, and within that you have, you know, roughly 90 members of the the chamber are Democrats, and those Democrats are really kind of all over the political spectrum, including a very large wing now um, of, of progress, young progressive Democrats. Um, who in the last two years or so have really been kind of flexing their muscle and they they're pushing the chamber to move a little more to the left. Um, they they think that you know Bush and and some of the old guard aren't moving fast enough for them, and so you know it's there's there's definitely um, they're definitely creatures of their chamber because of the because of the makeup of, of their membership. It sort of mirrors and reflective of how national politics work. You know with Inside of the House of Representatives, it's the chamber that is closest to the people, and that's where a lot of the real nuts and bolts and the the daily grind of the the politics occur. And then inside the Senate, it's it's much more, I, I would say, um, procedural, and uh, they have a, a just a different uh, perspective and approach to politics. And I have met Mike Miller many times, and to be honest with you, I really think that he's a decent guy. Um, he is he's somewhat intimidating, and he can be abrasive, but I say that in a, in a, in a, in a good-humored way. Um, I don't know the speaker as well, um, but I look at Speaker Bush, and then I look at the former speaker, uh, Cass Taylor, two very different people, and you know, one yeah. being from an Ar- and Arundel, and then another being from Western, you know, the true Western Maryland, just different leadership styles. Um, and I, 
It's fascinating. It's fascinating because Mike Miller will be there long after most governors. I mean, he's how many governors has Mike Miller gone through, Brian? Well, he's been there. He's been there thirty years. I mean, we go back to, um, I, you know, I want to say that he was in the House, and I, I, I don't have his biography in front of me, but you have yeah. to remember he did one. He did one term in the House of Delegates before he went to the Senate. And that was in the mid, I believe that was in the mid to late 70s. So I think actually he goes back um, to the tail end of the Mandel era. So, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, the, and, and Marvin Mandel, who was 95, just died, you know, died within the last year. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that gives you an indication of really how long the Senate president has been in the legislature in one form or another. So I was born in 85, and for the life of me, you you are much more of a, a political historian of Maryland politics than I am. I don't even remember who the governor was in 1985. I can't. I couldn't. Tell, I would so, have to go to Wikipedia. In 1985, I believe that was Harry Hughes because uh, uh, William Donald Schaefer ran in 1986, and the 86 election was the first election I was I was eligible in Maryland to vote. <laughs> that's funny. So that that sort of gives us an idea of our our age here. <laughs> I'm 30. Yeah, yeah that's a way. nice that's a nice way that's a nice way of saying I'm really old. I'm 40. I'm 48. <laughs> no, you're a you're a young man. Um, so, <laughs> Brian, here's a question, and I've someone who has had front row access to the governor and to to many you know to several governors in the past. Um, so. Tell me a little bit about Governor Hogan's leadership style. You know, what what do you think is his method of delegating authority? How do you think that he works with his team? And, you know, what what's his approach to to governance? Uh, look, I, I think, you know, what I have observed over the last three years or so is that the, the governor, the governor is, um, I think, a fairly notable. Guy, I mean, he he doesn't like the idea that you do things because this is the way they've always been done. Um, he he looks for places to he's looking for places to, to to change things to make to make government more, in his words, more customer friendly. Um, with customers being the businesses and the taxpayers who pay taxes, um, he he's definitely someone who's looking for accountability. I mean, all you have to do is watch the uh, watch a couple of board of public works meetings and see how he um, see how he speaks sometimes to even his own cabinet members when, you know, when they get something wrong, this is a guy, by the way, who, you know, tries to be very punctual. He, you know, his first board of public works meeting, the board of public works started on time and that may not sound like a big deal, but when I was there under governor O'Malley, I mean, we joke, we used to joke about O'Malley time and that, you know, Board of Public Works, if it started at 10, that really could mean anywhere between 1030 and 1045. Um, so, I mean, it, he's, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't sort of suffer excuses gladly. Um, he he he's he wants results. Um, you know, that being said, I mean, it's, you know, there's also sort of this there's a really interesting um, contradiction, if you will, because he's a man that calls a lot for bipartisan um, you know, for bipartisan efforts, but is also very quick um, to, you know, to take partisan shots as, you know, and, and look, it, it's, I, I certainly would not call the governor out for doing that um, without pointing out that everybody else in the legislature, even when they talk about bipartisan efforts, I mean, they are also very quick to, you know, to, to take their own partisan shots and you can't, you just can't take the politics out of politics. Um, 
but but I don't want anybody to sort of to sort of get the idea that it's you know that it is a a love fest down there. The governor the governor gets tough when you know when he feels like he needs to. And I'll tell you the other thing that we've seen is is that he's he's gotten very, for somebody who to use Mike Miller's vernacular for someone who's never held elected office before. Um, he is someone who has learned not only from his time in office, but clearly learned from working under, under Republican Governor Bob Ehrlich. And you don't see him doing the same things usually more than once. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think he, I'll tell you, I think there were a couple of things that happened this year that really sort of surprised Democrats on the other side, including you know, his own paid sick leave proposal and when he came out in favor of the fracking ban. I mean, this is a guy who I think clearly understands the politics and and you can't sort of disassociate what the, the actions that he took from some of the political benefits that are probably going to accrue to him later on. Right on. I want to and let's talk about that. The that's two big bills and two big pieces of legislation that surprised even Republicans in the state of Maryland. One being the fracking ban. I honestly did not believe that um, the governor would have fallen on that particular side of the issue, but. Brian, let me tell you one anecdote that may help you. Uh, maybe this will help. This helps me explain it. But I can tell you that when Kim and I we drove to um, the Autumn Fest up in Garrett County back last middle the middle of October, and it was actually it was a very warm day on a Saturday, and we were up in Oakland, Maryland, beautiful place, especially in the fall, right around Deep Creek Lake, and we we stayed the weekend there. And, Brian, we, we walked down to where the governor was in the parade. He had the Hogan RV, and his staff caught us, and we said, oh, hey, there's, there's Governor Hogan just hanging out, ready to, ready to walk in this parade. And they, they roped us into to walking with him, and, of course, we didn't mind. We, we held the banner, and the governor was standing right in front of us, and we had a great conversation. It was, it was really nice. And we walked the parade route, and there was thousands of people there. And I can't tell you how many signs we saw that said ban fracking now. And the governor acknowledged them. And they would shout, hey, governor, we love you, but ban fracking. And these are his supporters. These are Republicans in Garrett County who believe in banning the fracking and, and the science that, that goes along behind it. And to be truly honest and transparent, I am, I am not um, – I, I can't speak – uh, very competently on the the science. I'm learning more about it, but nonetheless, there were a lot of people during that parade who I who held up signs and reached out to the governor. The governor saw them and he responded. He waved. He shook their hand. He talked to them alongside the parade route. And if you've ever seen Governor Hogan on the retail circuit, he is it's it's something to watch. He's he's excellent and he connects with people. And in that sense, I believe that he's a, a very skilled and humble politician, and that's what I really like about him. And so I saw that, and I thought, hmm, okay, how will the governor come down on this issue? I didn't think that it was going to happen, but it looks like it did. And some of the own, some of, of some people, even in the governor's own party, like Delegate Wendell Beitzel, they came out really strong, hard against the governor when he made his decision. Yeah, and, and look, let me uh, let me throw a little wrinkle in there because here's where here's where sort of the uh, the politics comes into this. 
because if you you may or may not remember, there was another option on the table that that the state was looking at in terms of the fracking issue. So um, it wasn't just a ban. Initially, when the ban got introduced, there was a very contentious hearing. I wrote about it where Senator Bobby Zirkin went to Joan Carter Conway's committee and Senator Conway told uh, the, the Senator Zirkin that she was not going to pass his bill out of committee because she expected the governor to veto it. And she told him that he didn't have the votes for, you need 29 votes to override a veto. And she said, look, you know, I can count votes and everybody thinks you need 24 to pass a bill, but you need, she said, you need 29. And if you show me 29 votes, you can have anything you want. And and that sort of everybody looked at that and went, okay, that bill's not going anywhere. So the other option was the option she had in, which was a moratorium, an extension of the moratorium, but also a bill that then would put the fracking issue on the ballot where each each jurisdiction in Maryland would have to vote on the issue and the ability to 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 actually to do fracking in Maryland would be dependent on whether or not an individual jurisdiction said that they were okay with it. That's where the politics gets into it, because there was a lot of discussion about the idea that putting it on the ballot would drive a lot of progressive voters um, to the polls, not necessarily in places like Western Maryland, but in places where they've really had trouble getting voters to come out. And you look at the, the 2014 ballot, you know, the 2014 election, and, and you see you know, Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Baltimore City, record low turnouts, uh, you know, record. You know, and, and so you know, that people looking at that as a way to get progressives out to vote, those people also likely probably not going to vote for the governor. And so there is an argument to be made that, um, that, and I can't speak to what is actually in the governor's heart. He may truly believe um, in a fracking ban and in all of the things that he said at his press conference, but there's a political angle here as well. And by getting involved in the ban, he took an issue off of the table that Democrats could use to perhaps throttle him with in, you know, in, two, in a year and a half. Yeah, and he took the, t- he took the issue off. Not only did he take it off the, issue, off the table, but there's no – it, it can't hurt him. And unless you have someone who decides to primary the governor from the right – and there has always been chatter and talk and – you know, our dearly departed friend, Joe Stefan, God rest his soul, and we all miss him dearly. Um, in fact, we even dedicated an entire episode of our show to to remember Joe. Even when Joe was thinking – Joe had actually put out feelers online to, to challenge Governor Hogan. I don't know if it was serious, Brian, but um, I, I just know that some people have talked about taking on Hogan from the right. And who would that candidate even be? Would it be – you know, a, a Trumpian like candidate that would, uh, you know, hit from the hard right, or would it be a, you know, a populist style candidate? I can't imagine anybody actually winning, however. Yeah, I had a conversation. I, I, I had several conversations with Joe, um, and I think, I think he was more serious than not about it. Um, but I will tell you the same thing that I told him. I mean, I think it's, I think it's going to be very hard for a Republican to challenge the governor. And, and really what you're, what you're looking at is you almost sort of need, uh, forgive me if I sound like I'm talking about politics like liquor, but you almost need sort of your top shelf name brand candidate 
Um, and, and, and I'm going to throw a name out there. And I just want, before I even throw a name out there, um, I want to make it clear. I have no reason to believe that this is going to happen, but you're really talking about somebody like an Andy Harris, kind of a Republican, somebody who has a name, somebody who has, a, you know, has a bigger office, somebody who has a, a, a foundation and an organization behind them um, that could give the governor a good run for his money. It's, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do if you are just um, a, a Republican, you know, uh, let's just say you're a Republican who sits on a, as a county commissioner or a county councilman. It's just going to be very hard to mount that kind of a statewide race. I don't think people sort of understand how difficult it is to run statewide. And, and, and you're starting to see a lot of people who are coming out of the woodwork now on the Democratic side who are, you know, who almost sort of had this, like they woke up one morning and said, hey, you know, people like me, I could be governor. Um, and, and don't sort of really understand that there's much more to it than just, um, I think about it like Chris Rock from the movie CB4. He wakes up one morning and he says, "Hey, I know. Let's be let's be gangster rappers," and you know, and, it, and it's kind of and it's and it's kind of that mentality. And it's it's much more difficult to do um, because the state is a, even for a small state, the state is a big place, and you need a, you need money and you need organization. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I still think, generally speaking. Even when you look at some of the discontent in the Republican Party with the governor over things like fracking or folks who are, you know, folks for 2A supporters who don't feel like the governor has moved fast enough on their issues, in the end, where, where are they going to go? And I think that that's a great point to make. Where is the, where's the political outlet? Who are they going to throw their support behind? The Libertarian Party in Maryland is practically extinct or just non-functioning, and it doesn't work. Um, I don't see any big-name person challenging the governor, and as you mentioned earlier, anyone with a serious apparatus wouldn't dare do that. It would fracture the party, and it would lead to chaos. And we, we you know, it's like why we have a good thing going here. And there's some issues that I don't necessarily agree with the governor on, namely um, his support for um, p- uh, putting Labor Day, schools past Labor Day or an opening in as a as a statewide mandate. And look, the governor's getting into an argument and really taking on the Montgomery County Board of Education and the uh, Montgomery County in general. And so there's a big issue that I that I find with him. And you know I'm. I'm of the school of, no pun intended, that uh, we should allow local boards of education to make those decisions about what works best for their school calendars. The governor thinks otherwise, and he made his position clear that he believes that schools should open after Labor Day, and looks like that's going to happen, Brian. Yeah, and there, there's been very other than other than talk, there's been very little legislative pushback, and you know, and I think you're right. I mean, I think it's. You know, in the end, Republicans are going to look at this governor, and even if they are irritated, um, you know, about about a particular issue, um, to be honest, look, I mean, Governor Hogan has definitely. This is Maryland. It is a blue state. It is going to be difficult for any Republican to win twice. But I got. But I will tell you from where I'm sitting, um, I think Democrats are concerned, and I think that Governor Larry Hogan really has the best chance that we've seen, um, in, at least in my lifetime, of seeing a two-term Republican governor, the first two-term Republican governor since McKelvin. Uh, yeah, since McKelvin. Well, let's talk about that. So there's, um, 
there's Republicans that um, that believe that Governor Hogan will lose uh, simply because they disagree with his politics, which is not a fair analysis. So you have the Trumpian Republicans who say that's Governor emo- Hogan. That's an never- emotional analysis. Exactly, and I agree with that. And and I think that that's that's an unfair, fallacious analysis because it doesn't factor in that he's a popular governor. Um, that he's a I hate using political term or ideological terms to describe it because if I really try to describe Governor Hogan's governing philosophy, I don't like to put people in different camps. Like, oh, Governor Hogan is a moderate because he's conservative on many fiscal issues and he's not necessarily touched some of the social issues or he stayed away from them. Doesn't mean that he's necessarily moderate or even to the left, but it just means that he hasn't focused his time spent as governor on these specific issues. So it's unfair for me to really categorize where Governor Hogan comes down on the political spectrum. And I believe that Governor Hogan is, I would say, if if I could describe it, probably in the mold of maybe like a John Kasich on the national level. Would you think so, Brian? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, you know, what you're seeing, the governor is governing the same way that he campaigned. He did not campaign on social issues. Um, right. And, you know, and if you rem- if you remember, Anthony Brown's campaign almost entirely tried to define um, rather than tell people how why they should vote for him, tried to tell people not to vote for Governor Hogan because of any number of, of issues, including guns and abortion. And, you know, and Hogan, candidate Hogan at the time, basically ran a campaign that said, fine, if that's what you want to talk about, you talk about that, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about job loss. I'm going to talk about taxes. I'm going to talk about, you know, getting the, getting that, the state's financial house in order. And those are pretty consistently the messages that the governor has held, um, you know, while being governor. Um, and look, and I will tell you, it's effectively running what has become a four-year re-election campaign. He ran for a little more than four years to become governor and you know, really has been very mindful of the fact that if he wants a second term, he's, he's got to govern in a particular way, and then they're doing that. The 500-pound the elephant this session was the election of Donald Trump and him subsequently being sworn in and inaugurated as president um, during the very beginning of session. Uh, Brian, did you notice a Trump effect? Was there a, you know, was there that palpable feeling that Donald Trump was, you know, somehow inexplicably or uh, maybe connected somehow to to Governor Hogan? I mean, Hogan never came out and supported Trump, um, even well into the general election. But did Democrats attempt to try to tie? Donald Trump to Larry Hogan as much as possible? Uh, they still are. I mean, let, you know, and, and you mentioned Trump effect, and there's sort of two things I'll touch on there. Um, first of all, there is a Trump effect, and it's not probably what you think. I would actually argue that the Trump effect has been more about Democrats' reaction to the election of Donald Trump. Um, if, you look at the, if you look at the presiding officers agreed upon legislative priorities outside of paid sick leave, you know, we're yeah. talking about a package of five of five measures, uh, three bills or three bills and then two and, and, and roughly, you know, essentially two uh, resolutions that deal with issues related to things that could happen at the federal level. Um, I will tell you that within, you know, literally the next day after Trump was elected, um, my inbox started to see 
emails from from constituents from democratic supporting constituencies like the state teachers union and, and and other unions who immediately on all kinds of state issues tied Larry Hogan to Donald Trump there was you know there was language in that you saw Bill Frick um, the the delegate yeah. from Montgomery County who you know who in calling for a veto override um, of the renewable energy portfolio standard referred to Larry Hogan as the Trump of state circle. Um, so this is, this has not, this has not gone away. And the stretch is actually back to this time last year. Um, you know, when you had, uh, when you had uh, Congressman Delaney paying for a truck to drive around state circle with Donald Trump's photo on it, you know, demanding that the governor come out and, and, and take a state, you know, tell the public where he was on, uh, on Donald Trump. And in, in speaking of Congressman Delaney, there is talk that he is strongly considering a bid to run in the Democratic primary. And of all the candidates who we could think of that are, would run to be the Democratic nominee, I look at Congressman Delaney, who incidentally is my own congressman in the state of Maryland, would be Governor Hogan's most logical – logically toughest opponent in that governor um excuse me congressman delaney has shown himself to be bipartisan on many issues um he's reasonable he's wicked smart i've seen him in in, in, a, in a town hall where i mean i i'm just so impressed by the caliber of the politician that he has grown to become and he's a wealthy businessman it seems like a natural fit for him to be an executive in that he was an executive in a large business as the same as uh, Governor Hogan was in his business. I think that if they, you know, however the Democrats battle it out, should Congressman Delaney emerge as the victor in that Democratic primary, that would be a tough race for Governor Hogan. In theory on paper, yes. Um, I think for yeah. all of the reasons you outlined, but there are things that, that also you didn't mention that I think you have to put on the table, which is, you know, that this is a, this is someone again, who has not run a statewide race. He at this point does not have a state campaign account, has not started raising money to that end. Um, you know, we are walking out of session roughly 13 months away, 14 months away from the primary. Um, you're going to have to raise money. Look at the, look at the people who are getting in Kevin Kamenitz, Rashard Baker's being talked about, Ben Jealous, um, you know, and, and a cast of other people who are thinking, hey, why not take a shot? Um, at some point, you've got to get in, and every day that you're not in is one day that you're not doing all of these other things that you need to be doing to get in and run. Um, you could make the argument that this is a guy who has the ability to self-fund. Um, is, is he really the kind of guy that is going to put $10 billion Incumbent governor, I'm not convinced. You know, look, never say never, Ryan. But until he does it, I'm not convinced that he will. And I should throw well, in one other thing. I should throw in one other thing. He um, he hired um, Anthony Brown's former campaign manager, Justin Shaw, who yeah. you know really I think has to carry some of the blame for the election that got that was run for Anthony Brown. Um, it, it was contentious. It was standoffish almost at every point in terms of how he dealt with the public, how he dealt with the press. Um, you know, again, is that is that somebody that you want running your campaign, given the fact that it was so tone deaf in 2014? 
Well, and I think that Congressman Delaney is a shrewd businessman and politician, and I think that he's going to make the best decisions um, that will reflect uh, the most promising political outcome. And look, as you mentioned, you listed off a roster of candidates who could become the potential Democratic nominee. And you said Kevin Kamenetz, Kamenetz who is the current Baltimore County executive. Uh, you have Sharon Baker, who is the Prince George's County uh, executive. And I've even heard talk, and you'll think this is funny, but um, I've even heard talk that Democrats are looking to Ike Leggett, who is our county executive. Any any sort of thought on that? I mean, look, I've heard Ike Leggett's name. I mean, I'm not, again, not convinced that he gets in and runs. Um, yeah. But but I think but I think the fact that you and I are talking about this laundry list of people who's going to get in is really important to talk about because you know Ryan, this time. Um, in, if you go back to when Bob Ehrlich was governor and this time in the governor's, you know, in the governor's third year of his term, everybody knew it was Martin O'Malley. I mean, yeah, Doug Duncan was in and there were some other names being thrown around, but everybody knew that the Democratic champion was going to be Martin O'Malley. Who's right. that Democratic champion? Who's that Democratic champion right now? I mean, I would tell you it's it, it's much more difficult to discern, and I don't get the sense that anybody is super excited about anybody out there. I mean, you know, look, I mean, they're no. the, the the Democrat the presiding officers in Annapolis have had a less than enthusiastic relationship with Kevin Kamenetz. I mean, I, I can point to any number of examples where the presiding officers especially Senate President Mike Miller, have sort of publicly snubbed candidates. I don't know that anybody – there is a groundswell of excitement about any of the names yet. And, and maybe another one of the reasons why I hear repeatedly that there's still constantly this you know, try-to-draft-Elijah-Cummings movement, which I don't think necessarily is going anywhere, but people are talking about it. And if people are talking about it, that really speaks to the problem that the Democratic Party has right now in finding its champion for 2018. If you're talking about at this point in time, 14, 15 months before an election, about drafting a candidate when you have a qualified poll of candidates, then you know that your party has an issue with building excitement. So the question is, will there be a sort of Bernie Sanders-style candidate emerge from this Democratic primary that, you know, the hero, the um, sort of the under underdog-style – A Heather, a Heather Mazier? Yeah, Heather, Heather Mizer, who, by the way, is a very likable person and somebody who you may disagree with on many, many issues, but she is is someone – like libertarians like myself can truly get behind her many of her policy positions because she listens, and she's just wicked smart, and she's a nice person. So look, I, I I I'll just say right off the bat, I don't know that I don't know that uh, former delegate Mazir is looking to get into another statewide campaign, but she is that candidate that you just described, the Bernie Sanders type. And, and one of the things that she had going for her in the 2014 election was that even though she wasn't widely known, the the thing that we do know about her was is that the people who liked her, people who supported her, they were rabid about her. They were not sort of on the fence like, well, you know, maybe Heather Mazier. They were they were staunch Heather Mazier supporters. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to the point where like to the point where if you remember, Heather Mazier got involved in, in the election um, and, and, and wrote a, an open letter 
asking, asking her supporters to not stay out of the election and to get out and vote, you know, and get out and vote in the 2014 election, um, you know, and she, and, and to not go in and write her name in, um, you know, she, she's very popular among the people who support her. Um, I'm just not, I'm just not convinced that she could get in. I, there's, there's not a lot of money in the public financing uh, account anymore. Um, so I think that that makes it a little more difficult. And I, I just, you know, like I haven't, I haven't gotten the sense from her that while she pops up in Annapolis every now and again, um, I, I haven't gotten the sense from her yet that she's got a real fire in her belly to get in and mix it up on a statewide campaign. Um, you know, and there's, there are some of us who really think that she might be biding her time for a potential run at the federal level. Exactly. I mean, if Senator Cardin would ever happen to step down um, or decide not to run again, that would be a logical move for her to run for that seat. But let me ask you, Brian, is there any candidate or legislator out there who really inspires a group of individuals to truly get behind them and rally behind their cause like Heather Mizer? Where is the fire in the belly in these Democrats? Because it's certainly not with Kevin Kamen. It's, I mean, that's a real snoozer. Nothing against the county executive, but there's just not a whole lot of inspirational gravitas and movement behind him. Sharon Baker, I, it, no, I, I would say there's really – He's been in office, and it's just people know him or they don't, and it's like, okay, you know, all right. Maybe this Ben Jealous guy who seems to be out on the circuit, he's making his way around. Um, that would be an interesting um, candidate. And you know, Congressman Delaney could make a logical argument that he's the textbook best candidate to defeat him, uh, Governor Hogan, but I don't see the real fire in the belly. I mean, is there any legislator out there who, who could – could pose that type of challenge. Um, I mean, I have, I have three legislators that I really like, and and they're actually from different parties. I I really like Delegate David Moon for um, his positions on criminal justice reform issues. I like Delegate Brett Wilson, um, who is a logical, reasonable, sound Republican delegate who also focuses on criminal justice reform issues as well. And um, I really, I, I'm a big fan of um, Kathleen Dumay for also very similar reasons. So two Democrats and a Republican, imagine that. Um, so anybody out there that's building a movement, where's the passion? Yeah, I mean, in terms of building a movement for a run for executive, I just, I don't see it. Um, and, I, yeah. and I'll tell you, just to go back, to take a step back for a second on Rashern Baker, um, I should mention that I'm still, you can still put me in the skeptical camp um, in terms of whether or not Rashern Baker actually runs. Um, the county executive has not raised a lot of money. Um, and, and frankly, there's one, there's one particular issue that's going on that really I think probably is, is, is a big concern and, and will determine whether or not he runs. And that's, and that's the ongoing health issues related to his wife. Uh, your, your listeners may or may not know yeah. that Rashern oh, Baker's yeah. wife suffers from, from early onset dementia and he's he's very devoted to her, and, and so I want to make it clear, you know, that there's there's politics and there's personal stuff, and you know, and, and you know, when when your spouse is is dealing with these kinds of issues, your priorities are rightly focused on taking care of your spouse, and and by all accounts, this is you know this has been a, a large priority for him, 
And when you're county executive and trying to run for governor and taking care of a family member who has a significant health issue, there, there really is sort of this question about can you do it all and do it well? And, and I'm, you know, and if, if you have to choose, what do you choose? And, and I, I don't know how you – thank God I'm not in the position where I have to make those choices, but you can't sort of talk about the candidacy of Rashawn Baker in a bubble without acknowledging that these other things are there. Yeah, that's a very fair point. Um, speaking of individuals, Brian, who do you think emerged from this Annapolis session? Um, who were the victors in the political fights? Who, um, you know, who was a standout legislator? Who was a valuable contributor to uh, the discussion? And I, I don't like to put anybody into the least valuable category. I don't think that's fair. But who really stood out to you this session? I got to tell you, I think I, I think you have to look at uh, Mac Middleton, um, who is uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. I mean, this is this is a guy who is a Democrat from Southern Maryland, who really is known for his you know for being very open and and and, and a consensus builder. And this is a guy who you know worked very hard to build a consensus on the issue of paid sick leave. And and I know that there are a lot of people out there who, you know, the, the, uh, who, you know, who have differing opinions on this paid sick leave bill, but but nobody worked harder on it than Senator Middleton. And, you know, the, the bill that's the bill that's going to get passed is, you know, the bill that got is the Senate compromise version. That's the bill that got passed. And it's fewer days and has some, you know, has some carve outs. And, and it's a very different bill than the House of Delegates one. Um, I, I think he, I think he would go right to the top of my list just for all. And you know he's he's now being thrust into trying to deal with this very thorny issue of of unraveling and repairing the medical cannabis licenses. Um, and that's going to get done um, if it gets done at all. It's getting done tomorrow. Um, and, and that's you know that's going to be you know that's going to be a lot of work on his end um, and also uh, Senate President Mike Miller's staff. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about the big issue, I think, the one of the biggest stories that come out of Annapolis, which was the sanctuary bill. And when Mike Miller uh, – and, and let me clarify when I say the sanctuary bill. Um, Brian, what is the correct, um, the correct title for the actual bill itself? Oh, Lord, I'd have to look it up. We've been calling it – we've been shorthanding at the Trust Act in the office. Um, but oh, okay. essentially what you're, you know, but essentially what you're, you know, what you're talking about, about is a bill that would have um, basically made it, you know, made it clear that police could not, um, could not ask for, you know, stop someone and ask for their papers um, and mm -hmm. ask about immigration status. But it also put some, some restrictions on law enforcement in terms of um, looking into detainer statuses of people. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's kind of where the hair gets split here. Um, and the, the, the bill that you referenced is no longer in play. Um, the yeah. Senate got a hold of that bill and, and Bobby, Senator, Senator Bobby Zirkin, who's the chair of the judicial proceedings committee um, and, and his Repu and Republicans on his, um, you know, on his committee um, and some pretty and some pretty influential Democrats took that bill and essentially carved it up. And what they did was they took out um, all of the issues related to the detainers. As the senator, as the chairman said to me, he didn't want there to be 
an issue, um, you know, like where we saw in 9-11 where people are getting pulled over um, and, the, and the, the federal government is looking for them and nobody stops that guy. Um, or, you know, there's an MS-13 member that's sitting in jail and it's now illegal to see that the federal government wants him and he's back on the street. And so he did not want that to be, you know, that to be an issue. He sees that as a genuine public safety issue. But what they did do was they essentially reasserted standing law that says you can't ask people, you can't just walk up to somebody and ask them about their immigration status. Um, that's all, there's already existing law that essentially codifies that law in Maryland law. Um, and it also requires police training on the issue. And it looks mm-hmm. like if, if, anything is go- if anything is going to get done on that issue, and there's no guarantee that the House is going to, um, is going to conform to the, Senate, to the Senate amendments. But if anything gets done, it looks like that's probably where it's headed. One big issue that surprised me was the death of the redistricting reform. What happened to that, Brian? Um, you know, that – they're, the presiding officers have never been fans of that bill, going back to last year when the governor first first started working on it. Um, it's, again, it goes through a, a chairman, a Chairwoman Joan Carter Conway's committee. She's been very clear that she's not a fan of it. Um, and essentially what the, what the presiding officers want to see happen is they want to see a federal solution to this. And so what they did was they essentially took the governor's bill and amended it and, and cooked up a, a, com, a five-state you know, five regional compact, six-state regional compact, where if five other states, um, you know, Virginia, New York, um, I think North Carolina, um, if they get in and change how, and, and basically pass a law that looks like Maryland's, then they all sort of put together these – each one has an independent redistricting committee that will go through the exercise of trying to, uh, of, of trying to reform redistricting. But it's dependent on these five states, some, some Democrats, some Republican, with the idea that it's not going to harm um, Democratic seats nationally. Um, it's, it's not as far as the governor – as the governor wants to go, and I suspect probably the governor has not has not talked about what he's going to do, but I suspect it's probably going to be a non-starter with the governor because he does not. He's been pretty clear about the fact that he believes Maryland should be acting on its own, whether or not anybody else gets involved. Right. Yeah, I was I was surprised, frankly, that it it went down, and you know he formed that bipartisan commission. I have a good friend, my uh, Walter Olson. Who serves? Who served as one of the chairs, the co-chairs of that committee? I was just very, I was sort of disappointed because I think we all in the state of Maryland recognize that we have some serious, seriously gerrymandered districts. I mean, look at Congressional District Six; <laughs> it stretches all the way down into Montgomery County and goes all the way up to the tip top of Garrett County, Maryland, where you know the old district when Congressman Bartlett was serving, it went from. Garrett, Allegheny, Washington, Frederick, and then uh, I think it sort of went into Westminster. They had a like a section of Howard County. It was kind of weird, and, and then it and sort a, of sliver swir- and a sliver of and a sliver of Baltimore, northern Baltimore County. Yeah, yeah, and and it also went down into I believe Urbana, and then I don't know if it had any of Montgomery County, maybe like a tip of Montgomery County, like the very western tip of Montgomery County, but. 
the di- 6th District used to be markedly different. Um, and then you look at John Sarbanes' district, the 3rd, which is it's just you can't even tell where the heck that district goes to from top to bottom. And uh, yeah, that's a, it's, it's just wild. But redistricting is – Definitely falls under the purview of uh, the pol- of the political being. Oh, this is a bipartisan issue. This is something that we can all get around. But once again, um, it it didn't fall into that category, and, and I'm hoping that it will be revived. And I think that might be an issue. The governor can say, "Hey, look, I tried to do this, but the Democrats shot me down. So this is another reason why uh, you want to reelect me." Do you, do you think that's a plausible oh, um, political oh, position yeah absolutely i think yeah. not only will it be this is why you want to reelect me it'll be this is why you want to elect more republicans uh and, and look i mean it's part of the difficulty here is you know uh, ryan it, you know it, you can't take the politics out of politics and it's very difficult to get people who have power to give up power for no for, just because you ask them and, and and so look i will tell you i mean the, the districts today look very different than redistricting in 2002, you know, you you may or may not remember, but in 2000, prior to the 2002 congressional redistricting, Maryland was evenly divided in its in its representation for Republicans and for Democrats, if you can imagine that in Maryland. Um, and Paris Glendening came in and redrew the lines. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a there's a really great Sun Paper editorial cartoon that carved the districts up and made animals, basically almost balloon animals out of them, and and you know, and and it resulted in a six two split. And when O'Malley came in, you know, he furthered that and was able to you know was able to to, to get it down to a seven one split, so that Andy Harris is the only Republican in Congress now. Um, it, it's it, it has benefited Democrats and the Democratic Party over the last two election cycles. And I think part of what you're seeing here is an unwillingness to give that up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Brian, when you came into session back in January and knowing that you were going to <laughs> cover this and, you know, spend many late nights and, um, you know, covering every waking moment and the, the top stories, you know, what was your expectations going in and did they change as session progressed? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the session very rarely ever goes in very every very rarely ever goes the way you would expect. I mean, this is my 16th session, not including special sessions, and they are all they are all their you know their own unique little entity. Um, I mean, we knew what some of the, we knew what some of the uh, some of the big ticket items were going to be. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't think that we were going to have as uh, as many. Uh, Fights as we have had over appointments, and I'll and I'll drop I'll drop a little bit of news in here for you. Um, something right. that I'm working on. Something that I'm working on, and there's the real possibility that we're going to see this issue of appointments come up tomorrow. Um, I am being told that there is an effort to um, to try and resurrect the appointment of Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Secretary Dennis Schrader. Um, mm. Schrader was Schrader's name was withdrawn about a week and a half ago when the governor, after the governor's office decided that the Senate was taking too long and they were concerned that he, not that he was not going to be voted favorably, but that he was not going to get a vote. It was a very strange move. Um, one that, one that caused us to scratch our heads a little bit. Um, so my understanding is, is that there's this move afoot that 
um, that Democrats and Republicans have circulated a tally sheet um, in an effort to show the governor that Schrader could get a, could get a, a favorable vote. Um, but there's a deal to be worked out here, and this goes back to sort of what you remarked as a you know, transactional relationship with the Senate president. And what I'm being told is, is that the transaction here, it, the deal to be done is that um, the Senate president wants a guarantee um, from the executive's office possibly on the, uh, the issue of Wendy Peters' appointment. Um, huh. she's, uh, she was in the, appointed to the Department of Planning, um, the committee. She had a pretty rough um, a confirmation interview. Oh, yeah. um, she was not, she was voted, they voted to reject her and to send that rejection yeah. to the full Senate. And less than an hour after they took that vote, the governor withdrew her name and then sort of signaled his intent to keep her anyway. And mm-hmm. the legislature put budget, put budget language in that basically said, um, <laughs> if you have a secretary that sort of meets these qualifications and didn't get a vote, you can't keep them past June 30th and pay them. Uh, by the way, Dennis Schrader, it appears, would fall under this language. Um, there's, the reason why there's an effort to do this apparently is because Schrader has been involved in federal negotiations over the 3 or $4 billion in Medicaid waivers. Um, it's a lot of right. money to the state, and there's an effort to try and sort of a continuity of negotiation, but also to not have a guy who's acting secretary um, do these negotiations. It's not clear to me whether or not this is going to happen, whether or not the governor is, um, it, it would agree to the Wendy Peters issue. Um, they, uh, they have not, I will tell you when, uh, when Dennis Schrader was withdrawn, they made it very clear to me that they were going to thumb their nose at the Senate and reappoint Schrader anyway. And when I asked if they were going, regardless of this language about whether or not they could pay him, and when I asked if they were going to do the same for Wendy Peters, their response was is that, you know, P, is that Secretary Peters had the, had the confidence, the full confidence of the governor, um, but they would not directly answer the question about whether they also intended to, to keep her past June 30th. So maybe there's some wiggle room in there, maybe not. Um, I will tell you that the governor, um, the governor and the Senate president are both men who sort of, you know, I don't think that you, these are not guys that you bully. And so it, it could it could be interesting. And, and don't be surprised if that pops up sometime tomorrow before midnight. So a little breaking news there. Yeah, interesting. Wendy Peters certainly had a knockdown drag out fight. And I think that even a little bit unfairly to to her, um, they they beat her up pretty badly and basically accused her of being incompetent, which is not true. Um, you can make a you can make an argument that maybe she wasn't the most qualified person and you can talk about some of the staffing issues, but um, they, they really came out hard against her. And I think they did so for political reasons, but nonetheless, um, this would be interesting to see if this deal goes through. Another issue is that um, for the state board of education, um, are you familiar with Laurie Halverson? She would, I think either she got, Vote it down, or she withdrew her nomination. The governor appointed her to the state board of education. Well, and and there were at the same time that they withdrew Schrader's name, they withdrew three. They drew, withdrew five other names, and three of those were state board of education members that were withdrawn. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, there's, you know, there's there's no word yet on whether or not those will be dealt with tomorrow. My understanding is, is that right now 
the uh, the issue is solely focused on Dennis Schrader. Uh, look, I mean, I, I will tell you the Schrader thing. Interestingly enough, I mean, I never got the sense that Schrader was not was in any danger of not getting confirmed. I mean, there were some questions. Um, and I think in my mind, some legitimate questions about his resume. This is not a guy who is a prototypical health secretary. If you look at, you, you look at some of the other, you know, some of the other names that have served as health secretary who have deep backgrounds in public health issues. Um, he's an, he's an out of the box candidate, but, but somebody who really is known as a good manager and an organizer and I've had some people tell me that this is exactly the kind of thing you need um, in, in a situation where, you know, this is the large, the, in terms of funding, this is the largest state agency in Maryland. And, and it is kind to call it an, un, an unwieldy monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, the, whole, the whole Schrader issue threw me for a loop. The way that it went down, the way that they had the, the conversations throughout the, the political bodies – um, and it just – it seemed like the governor really quickly withdrew his name for knowing that this guy could have actually gotten through, and I'm thinking, why was he so quick to do that? Was that a, an appeasement move? What do you think, Brian? I, you know, I, anything I could tell you would be speculative, and I try to shy away from it. I will tell you sure. that, that it, it, it was a real head-scratcher for, for a lot of us, and it's not something – that I completely understand. Um, and, and here's the real reason why it's hard to understand, because they never argue, the governor's office never argues that this is a guy who's going to get an unfavorable vote. They're complaining about the fact that he's not getting a vote as fast as they would like. But they've had instances where they've had other appointments, other key appointments, who did, you know, Je- uh, Jeannie Hunter Severa, who was um, – Appointed to the appointed to the Maryland Higher Education Commission was actually going to get an unfavorable vote. And Senator J.B. Jennings talked to the executive nominations committee into holding off on that vote and letting her continue to serve until the end of the year, so that Hogan could make a Hogan could appoint her someplace else, and she wouldn't have this black mark on her name. She never got a vote. Um, Gordon Medenica, the head of the lottery commission, was appointed and actually came up for confirmation last year. They never even scheduled a hearing for this guy, and and the governor kept him on. So my question to them and and to myself has always been, what 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 benefit accrues to the governor um, by by withdrawing Schrader's name rather than just letting the letting the situation play out? Because you can reappoint him anyway. They could get the June 30th. Yeah. If he doesn't get a vote this session, Schrader could continue in office um, and, and come back up for appointment in the next year. So the one question we've never been able to get an answer to is, is what do you get as a benefit um, from doing it this way? And, and it, it just it's not something that makes that makes any apparent sense to any of us. Brian, what do you anticipate for tomorrow night? Do you do you expect any uh, I guess last minute um, deal making, anything that that um, was headed for failure that could pass, anything that might be controversial for um, Marylanders to watch out for. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'll tell you. Here's a couple of things on my watch list: uh, the the medical marijuana issue. Um, mm. That's got real. That's got real potential. Um, to to be problematic. I mean, there is a an ongoing lawsuit. The deal that's there's a you know there is a a deal on the table, but it is not yet completed by both houses. Um, 
and, and some of this is really going to center around um, issues of disparity, uh, disparity studies and minority participation. Um, I think uh, there's also this issue of the Internet service providers and Internet privacy um, that directly relates mm. to federal action um, and, you know, whether or not you know, businesses like Comcast and Verizon can sell how their users are using the Internet. Um, so that, you know, so that people can, they can sell you more stuff. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, there's also this, uh, this bill, which would be the first of its kind in the country that would give the, uh, the attorney general's office, the ability to sue over, uh, per, you know, over, uh, price gouging on, um, generic drugs. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the Taxpayer Protection Act, which is something that the comptroller wants, it failed last year. It's not, we're getting down to the last day, and it's not done now. Um, you know, that it's, he, he would like to be able to have the ability to have investigators with subpoena authority. This is something that he can already do on issues of liquor taxes and gasoline taxes, but strangely enough, can't do his own investigations on people who, um, who file fraudulent tax returns. Um, the, the manufacturing bill, the governor wanted a, a 10 year mm. tax credit to attract and, and to not only attract new manufacturing from outside the state, but also to bolster manufacturing inside the state. The House and the Senate have different have different views on this. That's not done yet. Um, and, and also uh, this uh, I, I don't think we can call it the roadkill repeal anymore. <laughs> um, but, but this, this bill that they have cobbled together in place of the governor's repeal of the transportation scoring act, again, still not done. So these are all things that are, these are all things that are going to come up tomorrow. And then there's always, a, there's always a couple of little weird wild cards that come up on, um, that come up on signy dice, things that, things that you didn't expect that were all of a sudden, you know, that all of a sudden start, you know, gaining some steam and, and, I've, the one thing I've learned is to never predict, never predict what those things are going to be, but there's always likely to be one or two in the mix somewhere. Yeah, I think so. Um, and yeah, as, as everybody patiently waits or sometimes impatiently to, for the, the end of the session tomorrow, something is bound to happen. I know it. Um, that will catch the eye, catch a journalist's eye. And, you know, Brian, while I have you on here, um, and, you know, as we wrap up the show, we have a few more minutes. We're going to go until 1030. Um, I want to talk just briefly about the state of journalism in, in Maryland. We talked much earlier in the show tonight about some of the journalists who, you know, and who to follow and, uh, and what. But what is your impression about the state of journalism as a whole in Maryland, where do you see it moving towards? And are people getting real news from from journalists? Um, in the in the broad in the broad sense, yes, people are getting real real news. Um, and, and and I have this discussion a lot with people. And and look, my my profession, um, you know, look, my my profession is as difficult as any other profession. And there are there are any number of you know there. By and large, very, very good people who do very, very good work in Maryland covering Maryland state politics. Um, and, and so you know, I always tell people, look, if you, know, if you want to talk about a specific issue, I'm happy to talk about a specific issue. But in general, um, you know, I, we've, we went through a whole litany of names and organizations at the, at the top of the program. And I would tell you that every one of those reporters is a very good reporter 
um, some people that I have described as being proud to work alongside. I mean, there are, I've, to, there are, there are days when I'm amazed that I get to be in the room with, the, you know, in the same room with those people. So, yeah. you know, it's, if wherever wherever it is that you live, I mean, there are there are good news organizations out there doing good state government politics coverage. I agree, and I think that you have such a paramount responsibility as a journalist, uh, especially in this era, and where people are questioning, they're skeptical. Um, people follow certain news organizations because they believe they have a ideological bent that agrees with their own personally held beliefs. I just want the facts, ma'am, sir. You know, I just want the facts. I want great reporting, and I've seen a lot of it from in the last several months. Um, and you know, as a brief aside, look at the story in the New York Times that was released last, I believe it was Sunday or Monday about Bill O'Reilly, who is Fox News's number one moneymaker. This guy brings in millions of dollars in ad in advertisements every year. And and the New York Times did this brilliant investigative story. Now, this type of news has been out in the public swirling for a long time, especially about O'Reilly. I mean, I knew about many of what they had discussed in the article, but based upon that piece of journalism – you see that advertisers have pulled out. First it was Mercedes, then it was Angie's List, and then it was a whole host of other people. Journalism has real effect. It is doing great things. And look at these uh, – I believe it was a high school class that investigated their principal's credentials, and then in, four days in, later in – In Kansas. In Kansas. Yeah. And, and you know they found out that she had some online degree or whatnot, and she – was you know, and then she resigned. But Brian, you you are doing work that people don't always appreciate. But on a minor detail, I can tell you that I am a vociferous reader of news every day, and you are one of the folks out there beating the street every day, getting the story, reporting the facts. And I applaud you and your work. You're an excellent writer. We appreciate that. I we need that. We need people to keep us informed. Therefore, we can keep our, our government officials in check, and we can continue to speak truth to power and hold them accountable. And your job is to inform uh, the, the readers, and I just think that you do a spectacular job of that. Where can people find you on the web? Well, you can find me uh, at thedailyrecord.com, and, I, and I'll just tell people it's a, it's a subscriber-based model, so uh, before you or I get any hate mail about it, it's, it's, uh, all, most of my stuff is behind a paywall, but that's how they, uh, that's how they pay me and how I feed my dog. Um, and you can, also find me, you can also find me on Twitter at BP Sears, and I'm on, uh, on Facebook as well, uh, Facebook forward slash BP Sears. Brian Sears of The Daily Record. We appreciate it. Keep up the great work, and be sure to read Brian's um, great journalism. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, sir. All right. Take care. Bye.